Hey everyone, welcome back to Stream. I'm Pankaj, and today I have Amol Sarva, founder of Notel with me. Amol, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey Pankaj. Yeah, thank you, it's a pleasure. Uh, having seen you in ages, it's a good way for us to catch up. It is, it's been, it's been quite a while. Um, I think the last time we caught up was, uh, I think almost two years ago, when you guys were down by Varick Street. Oh my God, can't believe it. Yeah. Wow. And you guys have moved around a lot since then, and a lot has happened since then. Um, yeah. Let's start with a little bit of background and some history. You know, you, you've been a serial entrepreneur, um, and a lot of people don't know some of the interesting startups that you have been involved with. And uh, Peak, especially, I think some of the audience will be surprised to hear about your involvement uh, in, in Peak and what that means for the Indian audience. So. If you could share a little bit about you know, starting Virgin Mobile USA and Peak and Halo, give us a little bit of background of you know that entrepreneurial journey that finally led to Notel. Uh, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess yeah, that's funny. Of course, we'll have some of our friends from India on with us. Hi. Um, it is uh, an interesting twist and turn in one of my companies that took me to India. We, um, you know, I guess the first company that I that I started that really became a big deal was Virgin Mobile back in 2000, which at this point is a very long time ago. And it wasn't even my first one. I mean, when I was in college and when I was in graduate school, I was sort of working on some stuff. None of it was any good. Um, but I guess because I had a little bit of experience, I bumped into somebody who wanted to start a, a mobile phone company. And this is when I was living in San Francisco, because I was sort of finishing at Stanford. And, um, uh, you know, he had this crazy idea. Let's start a mobile phone company. Uh, Virgin has agreed to back it, so let's go do it. And I was the first person to join him. Uh, and for the first like year or two, it was just three or four of us. Um, and we ended up building a very simple mobile phone business uh, where anybody could buy a phone. At, the, at this point, it's a very common thing, just a prepaid phone or pay-as-you-go phone. But in the US, we were really one of the first. And um, it became a big business. It went public in 2007. And it was a really cool experience for me. I learned so much doing that. Uh, and, you know, actually sitting where we are now, we got through the dot-com crash just a few months after we started. We had to face that. Uh, and we also got through 9-11, which was about one year later. I was setting up the New York office for Virgin Mobile on the day of 9-11. Um, and then um, my co-founders from Virgin and I started another company uh, in around, it was 2006 or seven. Um, Virgin was sort of well on its way and we had left and we were starting a new thing. Uh, and that was called Peak. Peak was a simple smartphone. Uh, at that point, we had some kind of credibility and track record with um, with mobile. And so we thought, all right, let's do another thing in mobile. Let's do smartphones. Let's make a simple smartphone that anyone can afford. You don't need a Blackberry that costs three, four hundred dollars, five hundred, six hundred. The iPhone had just come out. They had their first year. They sold a million phones in 2008. Um, and we thought, well, let's make a device that costs $30 so anyone can be on the internet all the time. They can do messaging, they can do Facebook, Twitter kind of stuff, certainly texting, email. Um, and we sold those all around the world. Uh, and in the end, it was 2012, finally, when we got acquired. And we were acquired by, by this company called Bharti Software, which um, was a joint venture between Bharti, uh, the dominant mobile phone carrier at the time. It's amazing how fast things change. Yeah. Uh, and on the other side, SoftBank, 
which um, at the time was already, you know, a big, powerful company. You know, they were so powerful in Japan, they had a big mobile phone business. They bought our company so they could start building uh, simple mobile apps, things like Foursquare or things like Twitter or things like WhatsApp for the South Asia market. So they buy the company. And of course, it's very ironic, the things that have happened in the time since then. Yeah. Uh, but it was a wild ride and it was really hard. And even that one, you know, by the way, so for Peak, we started a, a, just a little bit into it. We launched and it was 2008, September 2008 uh, is literally the September 12th is the day, which is when the global financial crisis got really serious. That's when Lehman Brothers failed. Yeah. And I had to run that company through a very difficult period as well. So uh, one of the things that uh, I always thought was really interesting was that Pete became the foundation for what today is hike, right? Uh, the message yeah. that's, uh, uh, you know, raised a lot of money and uh, is pretty popular among tier two and tier three cities in India. Um, and it's, I, I always thought it was fascinating that the underlying technology was built by a fellow uh, yeah. New Yorker, uh, you know, a decade ago, more than a decade ago. That's why they bought it. Yeah. I mean, they wanted a software platform, although we had made this cool device, the software we made, made it possible to do smartphone type stuff on lower cost devices. Yeah. And so the first thing they launched with it was Hike. Yeah. And last time I checked, it had maybe half a billion monthly users. I don't know if that number is up or down since yeah. then. But I, I, I suspect the number is probably up now over the last couple mm. of months. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the insane amount of usage uh, from what I've heard mm. the last couple of years and growth. Um, I want to take a quick tangent to something that is completely non-tech related. Um, tell me a little bit about about East of East, uh, you know, what was this project and how did you kind of get into that, uh, East of East? Uh, it's, it's yeah, a, but I don't want to give away what it is. So I'll let you take that. And yeah, it is. Okay. You know, if I wasn't doing what I do now, it really would be a tangent. Um, but Notel real estate business and, uh, when I started working in tech and doing things with mobile phones, smartphones, all that, I thought I was getting away from the family business. My, my dad over the years, you know, immigrated to America and he had an accounting practice and, and really over time, the business turned into real estate because a lot of his clients, um, you know, a bunch of Indian doctors were uh, investors in real estate. And by the time I was, starting my professional life, it was a pretty sizable business, you know, and I wanted to get away from it. Ironically, you know, seven or eight years into my working career, I myself was sort of tempted. I was like, oh, you know, it would be really interesting. I want to build a place to live. Uh, I don't want to do something super boring and vanilla. Like maybe I can take on a challenging project on the side, like while I'm building peak and trying to run this company through the financial crisis at the same time. I was trying to develop and build an apartment building uh, in New York City. Uh, and I was trying to do it in a cool way that it would be like a really innovative project. Oh my God, it was so hard. I mean, we did end up finishing that project. 2012 was a big year for me. I mean, I finished that building and uh, Peak got acquired. Uh, and I guess, you know, at the end of that, I felt like, wow, I think I can survive anything. Well, the New York Daily News uh, called it in 2010, I think, the most important new building in Queens, right? Like, um, that's 
That's quite an <laughs> I mean, that's kind of cool, yeah. It's nice yeah. they said that. I think at the time, people weren't building very beautiful or architecturally kind of ambitious buildings. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's very nice. So so you, you, you come back to the family business, real estate, and you sell Peak, you finish off the building, and I guess you, you decide to move away from real estate again and go back to tech, right? So by well, yeah. 2014, when we met, um, you were prim not primarily in real estate. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, the, for me, the real estate project was um, just like a very serious hobby. Of course, it's like it was, it was hard, but it, I didn't intend it to be like a professional undertaking. I, I sort of saw my the experience I was starting to build and, and to be good at was just startups, you know, like figuring out. Um, where a new kind of technology or a new product or a new process might create some opportunity. And when um, when the deal for Peak came together, uh, I was really like at the end of, I don't know, like five or six years of being super intensely focused just on smartphones. Yeah. And I started a period around then of 2013, 14, where I was thinking about some new directions. Um, what are some cool new technologies? What are some cool new things, some problems? and one of the first ones that I got really passionate about was a, a, a product called Note, K-N-O-T-E. Because my thought was, um, just in doing my work over the years, the different tools we were using were way too noisy. So like, you know, you don't need me to tell you that email is a really annoying, busy, messy thing. And then even some of the chat stuff, because, you know, this was a, the era a little bit still before Slack, but there were a bunch of products that were kind of similar to that like campfire and of course chat had been around forever. And I thought a lot of that stuff was really noisy. You didn't have a place to put like organized, synthesized information that a team could look at together. So every time you have your team meeting, like you just know what the numbers are from last week, what's going on this week, what are the things we agreed, what are the next steps? Some people these days will do that in like a running Google doc or something. And I, I still don't think that's the ideal format. So back then in 2013, 14, we were building this collaborative workspace product, collaborative workspace, digital workspaces um, called Note. And we were really getting somewhere and that's when we met, right? I mean, we had signed up a big enterprise customer and they were, I think our revenue run rate was coming up on a million dollars a year at that point. Uh, and I felt like we were really onto something. Uh, I, I don't know if I lost your sound, but I can tell that you wanna know what happened next. You yeah. still have me okay, right? Oh, I, there we go. I still have you. Um, no, I was, I, I was just saying that, uh, that was around the time that we met and you were at about a million dollars in revenue. That's, uh, when I led the investment from 500, to, in, in note at that time. Right. And, yeah. Um, that's when we started spending a little bit more time together. And, you know, I think the, though you were at a million dollars, uh, run rate, there were some challenges that you started seeing with the product, right? And there were also yeah. other opportunities you started seeing at the same time. So, you know, tell me a little bit about kind of that, let's say two year journey between 2013 and 2015. Yeah, so the product was starting to come together. We had somebody who was starting to pay for it. It was a little strange because we had sort of intended it as the sort of thing that individuals who work in companies or professional productivity kind of folks might start using. And we had this first big enterprise that was paying a lot of money, but it wasn't really showing how the business was going to get 10 times bigger. We sort of had to figure out how to go to market, right? So I was starting to think about that. And the product wasn't quite ready. It was getting ready. 
by the beginning of 2015, I thought, okay, <clears throat> time to really focus on the go-to-market. I think we've been prototyping this thing long enough. We've got some beta users here. They they have a use case. Now we got to go explain it to the world. And I think you know anybody who's who's watching, if you were to go to the website, note.com, K-N-O-T-E, um, you'll just see a website that maybe doesn't really explain itself very well. And that's basically the exact same page that existed in uh, March or, or April 2015, because as I was starting to think about that, um, my co-founder and I, Edward, uh, we noticed this other weird thing happening. So we had been sharing our office with just a bunch of friends who also had their companies for several years since we started. I mean, from the beginning of 2013 and 14 and 15, we're working on Note. We have a handful of people, but you know, it's a big space. A year goes by and then the landlord gives us another floor. Another year goes by, he's offering another floor. And what I was puzzling over in the middle of 2015 was, wait a second, hi, this is kind of a distraction. We, I don't know why we're running this like shared office kind of situation. I guess it's fun to have some other like-minded people around, but this is really not helping us with note and we need to really double down and get going. We have the conversation about that. And um, I remain surprised even today <clears throat> that we actually came out with the opposite conclusion. We, um, we looked at what we had been doing and we asked ourselves why it kept growing, why it never lost money. It seemed to just be growing profitably with very little effort. We looked around a little bit at what else was going on in the world of real estate and office and startups and stuff. And we saw all this co-working going on. And we actually decided that this was extremely interesting, perhaps more interesting than what we were fiddling around with on Note. And we thought, all right, uh, Notel, <laughs> the Note, the Note Hotel. Let's um, let's see if there's something here. And so, it, in the middle of 2015, we just start really thinking about it. You know, I go check out all the different co-working things. I interview all my friends that run other startups. I kind of do some analysis of the market. We do some math and try to figure out. Can this thing make money? Is it silly? Man, should we be scared of real estate? I happen to have some experience. A lot of tech people, even today, will say, oh, I don't know anything about real estate. I'm just not gonna go there. Yeah. And at the time, that was even more true. Uh, you know, in retrospect, it's like saying you don't know anything about uh, electric cars or you know artificial intelligence or something. It's like a very powerful market. Yeah. And so we decided to go for it. And we thought there is a real thing. Notel has a real opportunity to do something that the office market has never done, but that people clearly want. So the office market has never been flexible. It's all about these long-term leases and the owner just sort of hands you the keys and then you're in charge from there. You gotta do all this stuff yourself. You have to do construction and order furniture and design the whole thing and unclog the toilets. I mean, it's just a nightmare. Yeah. So the office market's never really been flexible or full service, but on the other hand, what we noticed from the coworking um, boom, was that there was a pocket of the market that really wanted that flexibility. You know, they would rather work in some gigantic building with thousands of other people than in their quote unquote own office. Yeah. I mean, when I was starting out and, you know, if you were like a startup founder, you would never want to confess that you don't have your own office. It means you're not real, you know? Right. Uh, yet people were somehow really attracted to the power of that flexibility. So we're like, all right, what if real companies could have flexibility? Let's do that. Let's focus on real companies. 
and find out what it takes to make flexibility a real option for them. There's got to be some reason, some obstacle, a reason like landlords have just haven't done it. So let's chunk through what all those things could be and see if we can build a better process system. Let's see if technology can help us. And it turns out the answer is yes. I mean, we had one building with 10,000 square feet back in 2015, and now, you know, it's millions and millions, and we're in the you know two dozen, almost 20 cities, 10 countries, serving hundreds and hundreds of companies. Wow, I mean that's that's quite a uh, change from 2015 when you guys were just starting out, um, and you know you went from. Um, testing out the waters in 2015 to raising $400 million in 2019, right? I mean, when you talk about like blitz scaling and rocket ship that, you know, this is a perfect definition of, of that. And, you know, yeah. so, so, you know, the, I'm sure that also comes along with lots and lots of challenges in, in terms of dealing with your team, finding the right people, scaling, you know, I, I've been lucky enough to kind of have a, uh, a little bit of a, inside view of to as to how some of those things uh, uh, changed over the last couple of years. But, you know, there's still a lot that I haven't been a part of. Right. And so as a CEO, as a founder, um, you know, I'm sure it feels great when you see like, Hey, more and more inventory being added. You're, you guys are scaling. You're trying to find people to hire. You're having to let people go that aren't working out. You know, what are some of the biggest um, challenges that you dealt with in that four or five years uh, that were new challenges and that really kind of pushed your limits? Oh, I mean, all of it. Um, I guess maybe uh, a lot of it, a lot of it. I mean, I, I guess like the, the job of startup founder is pretty hard. And I, I know that it's like the most pathetic thing in the world to complain about because it's like such a privilege. There are so many folks that would love the opportunity to start a company and raise money and like be at it doing there. And I don't think we have a very fair um, venture capital system. And I think a lot of things in our, in the U S system and in the global system are, are, are really like stacked against lots of folks that would love to be on the inside. Yeah. And um, you know, here I am in my, my fifth company that I've started, whatever. So like, I don't expect any sympathy because um, it's, you know, it's my own choice and I'm lucky to even have, have, have these problems, but it is, um, it's a really hard job. Yeah. Um, in the, in the very early innings, it's really hard. And there's so much like writing these days and so much content. And there are so many people who are so open. You can really learn a lot about startups. It's good. Yeah. And I think if you spend five minutes or five months learning about it, um, one of the things you'll find out is it's really tough to find a product that people really want and get it all together and like get it off the ground and get it going. You know, the odds are low that you'll be right. And even if you're right, it's going to be insane. Um, and there will be no like simple recipe you can follow. You'll have to figure a ton of stuff out. Okay. Fine. And in, in a way that's almost, um, I mean, that's like, well known. So if all I did was tell you, yeah, starting out with Notel was really tricky in that way, then uh, you wouldn't be hearing anything new. I think for me, the part that was really challenging is like my first few companies, you know, let's see. So Virgin Mobile, I wasn't actually in charge. My co-founder was the CEO. And at a certain point, we hired some like big shot from AT&T, like three years into it. 
And then like that person was running the whole thing. And these were not my problems anymore. Like I had the luxury of feeling good, like, oh, I'm the co-founder, but it didn't matter. Peak was a smaller company. It was a couple hundred people, tens of millions in revenue. Uh, sounds big, but not, not such a big deal. Mm. You know, I think we raised like 25 or $30 million um, for Notel in year two. So I guess that's 2017 is when we sort of reached that size. Uh, the biggest thing I had ever done. And then we doubled and then we doubled and then we doubled. And like every one of those steps really just foreign territory. Yeah. It's so, it was so tricky. So every single dimension and, and we, we should go through them. I mean, to the extent that you're interested, it's like, how do you deal with com competition Yeah. when you're nobody? Um, how do you deal with people when the vibe of your company is changing quite a bit from family to like, industrial operation, global operation. Right. Um, you know, investor attitudes, the ups and downs, uh, the macro. Like if you if you if you if you're gonna get big, that means you're it's gonna take time. And given enough time, you're gonna have these awesome up periods and you're gonna have these devastating down periods. Usually the story of a startup is just like the last five minutes before you heard about it. And like the years that came before. Uh, you know, like Amazon almost went out of business in two thousand. Yeah. You know, Facebook did a massive down round in 2009. Right. Uh, Tesla was on the brink of going out of business in 2008 and nine and got bailed out by like some special loan from the yeah. Obama administration. People have gone through all kinds of adversity, but you rarely think about it. And then you're in charge and then you see the adversity and then you're like, wow, I, I, there's no uh, TED talk to watch for uh, dealing with that. So, were there mentors and people that you had reached out to at that point to uh, to help you with some of these new challenges that you were seeing for the first time? <laughs> and, uh, you know, perhaps they had gone through similar challenges in the past. Uh, were there folks that you reached out to and you say, you know, this is somebody who was a mentor to me and somebody that really helped guide me through some of these challenges? Oh, I mean, there's many. I, I guess the first one is just my co-founder, Edward and I. <coughs> have overlapping but different experiences and understand each other really well and i think now that we've worked together for quite some time we're like very much in sync without having someone who's almost like a mirror to look into to say like hey mirror on the wall <laughs> what, what, what do we what should we do to have been alone would have been super super hard um and you know his experience is very substantial and valuable like him on his own he might have felt somewhat inadequate for some of the challenges we faced. I certainly felt that way. But together, um, it, it, has, it, has, it, was, it has helped a ton. Now, to say mentor for your partner is a little different. Um, there are a bunch of, of quite seasoned and experienced folks that I've accumulated over time who've helped me so much. I mean, there's a woman on our board whose name is Linda. Um, she joined our board pretty early when we were quite small, and she's a veteran of you know, many years at McKinsey, many years in a big giant PL at American Express and private equity and venture capital mm -hmm. boards of all these public companies. She's like a really wise and experienced hand and had a lot of um, advice for me. And then, you know, there's another one and another one and another one. But really, I think all of them boil it down to I can't do it for you. All I can do is like give you a few bits from my experience and you're going to have to figure it out. Yeah. Um, so I wish there was some stage that I turned to in all my trickiest moments and they just sort of knew there, there kind of isn't. Yeah. 
So around that time, you know, uh, WeWork was, you know, another rocket ship going uh, all over the world, setting up offices. Oh, yeah. I mean, they make us look like a little modest neighborhood business. Right yeah. Now. So, you know, how did you handle the competition? And, you know, what did you really do to differentiate yourself from a WeWork that was kind of everywhere and everyone was talking about? Um, you know, and meanwhile, Notel was still primarily in New York uh, 2016 up until 2016. I think 2017, you guys. Uh, oh, no, even beyond. I mean, Punkage, I think the first time we earned a million dollars of revenue outside New York was January 2019. Oh, wow. So 15, 16, 17, really 2016 is when we started, January 2016. 17, 18, all the revenue in the business is in one city in New yeah. York. Yeah. So we're, you know, we were growing a lot in New York. And by the time we were at the end of 2018, I think we were a very, like a serious rival to anybody. You know, I think we I think we had more locations than they had actually in New York at that point. Um, but we weren't in a hundred cities. Yeah. Those guys, they were. Uh, and we had raised, you know, maybe a hundred million at that point or seventy-five yeah. million. And um, you know, those guys had raised, I don't know, ten billion or something yeah. by then. Um so we were not as like a meaningful competitor. And the story of the first few years of the business was we had to both differentiate and also demonstrate uh, a substantial um, shot on goal. Like we were a serious rival in a big market. Yeah. It, when we got started, the market was simply called the co-working market. And co-working is when you know you have like one or five or seven people in a little office and it's a giant building and there's like hundreds of those little offices. Yeah. What we had been focusing on from the very beginning is like, we gotta do what corporates want. So if you're Shell or Rolex, or salesforce.com, uh, you, you really, you're gonna use maybe a little of that, but the main thing you do is you put 100 person, 500 person teams into tailored spaces that are just like all on brand, correct for your culture and all your standards of safety and security. Uh, but you just don't like long-term leases and you don't like the brain damage. When corporates do it, they spend maybe $50 per square foot per year on their rent. And then they spend another 50 or 60 or $70 designing it, building it, managing it. Like CFOs at these companies know they're spending lots of money, DIY office yeah. management. And so our thought was let's deliver the thing they want that they know they want, but with flexibility where we do it for them and it saves them. So from the very beginning, we're doing it. Yeah. But we're a tiny company. And on the first day we weren't serving Starbucks or Microsoft, you know, we were serving like some startups and we weren't, no, you know, it was too early for anyone to really take us seriously. But as we go, as we go, as we go, um, we're trying to establish what we do and also our seriousness and our viability. And lo and behold, you know, in the last year, people don't really call it the co-working market anymore. We've managed, I think, uh, at least partly due to us, to have that market called flexible office or, you know, flex or something like that. Yeah. And, and as that like market space has expanded, we're clearly one of the leaders. I think we're actually, you know, maybe maybe that company that you mentioned is the only one bigger. than us. Yeah. Um, we're and we're the only ones who do what we do. And if you even try to find someone who does anything similar to us, you know, we're 10 times bigger. Yeah. Um, it was tricky. So the early days, it was a very dangerous tightrope, a very like challenging um, uh quest to establish that we could be a real player. And that means you got to take a bunch of chances. You got to get big and you don't know if every move you're taking is right. Right. 
what was the um, one or two moves that you really were not sure about, uh, but you took those chances and they panned out? Um, well, I think there's two pieces of our strategy that were, and I think we still talk about this as a team. You know. uh, one was get big. And, you know, if you wanted to be, if you wanted to make fun of it, you'd say it was blitz scaling. Uh, it is no longer in vogue. You know, these are not the times for yeah. reckless growth at all costs. But our intention was if we can be enough locations, enough size, enough assortment, enough selection, then large companies will come and choose from our assortment instead of us having to spend lots and lots of money to try to get their attention. We'll have a lot of product for them. We'll have 100 buildings in Manhattan. We'll have 50 buildings in London. So get big. That was a really risky move. Yeah, uh, it meant we would lose a lot of money. I mean, fundamentally, like the early days of a startup, you are investing, also yeah. known as losing money, uh, until you start making money. Right. And so it was a really ambitious strategy. The other one was um, we left New York. I mean, we spent like three years focused just in New York. And then in the space of 2019, we added nine countries. Wow. Uh, you know, at this point, like Brazil, Japan, uh, Germany, France, uh, Netherlands, Ireland, uh, India, UK, like we added all these places. Yeah. And uh, on both counts, it's a little tough to draw a simple conclusion. Uh, we're big enough to matter and to get through this terrible crisis. So I guess that's good. Yeah. Uh, if anyone's going to be a market leader in the future, we've got a shot at that. Yeah. On the other hand, like we're really big and this is a terrible global recession. And that means we've got a lot of cost and a lot of like risk in the business. So that's some pluses and minuses. And then on the global, the bet to go global, I mean, you could look at it one way, maybe 40% of our revenue at this point is, is in Europe and Europe's going to come back from this virus a lot faster than, yep. uh, than, uh, than the U S on the other hand, what were we thinking launching in NCR in India yeah. and being subscale or in Brazil? Uh, or stretching ourselves out into Los Angeles. You know, we were really strong in San Francisco and we decided we wanted to get into LA and start getting big there. And all of a sudden, both of those markets are just being devastated by the virus. Yeah. So is it good that we're hedged and we're across a lot of geography? I mean, on the whole, I think yes, mm. but you could look at both of those like pretty risky moves and, and, and have a healthy debate, I think. Yeah. Well, you know, over the last, three or four months, um, I'm sure you and your team had a lot of time uh, at home to start thinking about um, how this might change over the next couple of months. Is it going to change? Uh, you know, is the business fundamentally uh, done, you know, in 2020? Uh, or how are you going to get out of it? Um, I guess my question to you is, First question is, what were the most immediate things that you had to do once the shelter-in-place order came down and you started seeing uh, that it wasn't just New York, but it was other cities and other countries where you were that were also shutting down, right? Like, So what's the mm. first thing that uh, you and your team realized, like, look, we, got, we have to do this, otherwise this is going to be a real big problem for us? Like, what, what's that first thing that came to mind and, like, we got to solve this. We got to take care of this first. 
uh, well, the very first thing was the safety of our people in the markets that were starting to show the virus. Yeah. Um, it was it got on our radar when things got serious in uh, in Italy and Iran, which is I think where people started getting really concerned about the yeah, spread. Like February. Uh, yeah, and we're not in Italy, we're not in Iran, but it seemed like, the, and already at that point, there were starting to be a few cases in, let's say, Paris. Yeah. So the very first thing we did is just for our own staff, you know, wash hands. Like it was a naive, I think, response in the early going hmm. of um, almost as if we were just talking to our own staff about the flu. Uh, and then we had to start talking about, okay, maybe things are going to get shut down. I mean, I remember a night in, uh, in March, well, we had to prepare to shut down. You know, there was some level of like, maybe we should close the office. So we started preparing to do that. Some governments hadn't made the decision yet, but we sort of assumed it was gonna happen, which I guess tells you something that these governments were a little slow. I mean, even some cities that you think kind of had pretty muscular responses, they were they were slow. Yeah. Um, and then we were, and as soon as we realized we might have to shut down our office, uh, we realized we might have to shut down 500 other offices, all of our, our staff and cli our clients, basically. Yeah. So huge piece of work gets into motion on that. And so we're thinking, first of all, like, all right, protecting our people, helping our people. Is anybody traveling? Anyone on vacation? Like, what about a city? What are we going to do if we have to go to the office? No, we have to shut it down. Actually, we have to shut down all of these offices. Actually, we got to figure out what we do for our people's safety as we do that. And we made a bunch of mistakes even as we were trying to think that through. Like, there were some things we hadn't really considered. Um, we hadn't considered well like the economic consequences so like we tried to do a great job of shutting down and planning that right so we're like okay when there's an order in a city we're going to be ready to go we will or if there was an incident like a virus to, to do cleaning but okay we do the shutdown and okay we've thought it through safety and security we make sure the security systems are on we create some kind of detail that we'll go check these places because there might be robberies like if you have a place that's shut for a week okay we think we're smart and then we totally overlooked, what if this goes on for three months? We were thinking it's like three weeks. On top of it, we overlooked the economic consequences. If this thing goes for a while and then a company just goes out of business, but we're locked down and our staff's not supposed to be out there, but this company is out of business and we gotta like do something to the physical asset and we have all this expensive gear in the place. Yeah. I mean, I still regret very much. Like we had some folks that were taking risks going out in some of these cities um, because some of the stuff we just hadn't thought it through. We didn't anticipate it. Well, there's no real playbook for uh, dealing with No, it. but you got to communicate internally well enough that you see what's going on. And someone somewhere in our company knew this. Hmm. Someone made a decision and they were being courageous and they were trying to do the right thing. But like, if enough of us had known it, if I had known it, we might've done it a bit differently and not taken a risk. You know, there might've been another way to do it. Mm. And you know, when things are moving fast, I know that sometimes things get screwed up, but uh, it was tough. Yeah. Um, let's talk about, you know, the, the human side of this, uh, you know, I'm sure you guys had to start, you know, once you're two weeks or three weeks into this, I'm sure you had to start thinking about, you know, the burn. Cause I'm, I'm sure your landlords are still knocking on your door and asking you to pay uh, around the world. You're still burning a lot of money. You have uh, staff that you have to take care of. You know, what, what was going through you, your uh, team's head when you said like, Hey, 
we're shut down for more than three weeks. We, we're not sure how much longer this is going to go on. What do we do with our staff? Everyone else is sitting at home. Um, how'd you handle that? What'd you do? Yeah, I mean, like the, the bigger version of that question is at first it was a pure safety crisis, you know, health yeah. of our people. And then at, even at that moment, it's like a very traumatic moment because I can't protect my colleagues' family. Right. You know, so people are like really concerned about just their own world. But within, you know, just a handful of days, right? Like there's that day the stock market fell by seven or eight percent in a day, whenever that was. March it was pretty 16th. clear. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Did you say March 3rd? I think it was March 16th. Uh, it might be, yeah. Um, it was pretty clear that no matter how this goes, there's going to be a pretty devastating economic downturn. Um, and we sat and looked at each other and we thought, well, at least for me, uh, I, I remember a day like that. I remember uh, September 12th, 2008. I remember you know, September 12th, uh, 2001, the day after 9-11, um, I, I knew that there was going to be a massive um, economic challenge for a long, long period. Um, and what we, and I think a lot of my colleagues knew that. I don't mean, I have some kind of like, but like, it, it was kind of obvious. And we just decided we had to m move really fast. And Having seen some of these before, we decided that we should be as conservative as possible. Um, just assume it's gonna be really bad for quite some time and figure out what on earth we can do to make sure we have some margin of safety. Um, so we'll be there on the other end of this thing. If we hadn't changed anything, surely on one of these terrible scenarios, we would just run out of money and go out of business. I mean, running a startup, you're always running out of money and going out of business. Like that is just the nature of it. In the first day of a startup, you're going out of business every night when you go to sleep. After a certain point, you have some money and you might have like, you know, a few months of runway. After a certain point, you might have a year where you can predict into the following year. Um, and as we were getting bigger, we had a little more ability to look into the future, but this thing was gonna be devastating. Um, so yeah, we, we, we set ourselves some kind of expectations. We tried to create something reasonable, but really very conservative. We had started the year with the expectation that we would, this would be the year we would turn profitable at the end of the year. You know, we had been investing, investing, investing. A lot of capital had gone in. We were now pretty big. It was important no longer to grow at like 5X per year, but maybe we grow at 2X and we turn profitable. So we look at what we think the situation is going to be and then come up with what will it take for us to just get through with enough money that we're not put out of business by this crisis. Well, one of the very first things we had to do was pretty dramatically reduce cost. We, we had to look at every, every different thing we do. And there's a handful of things we do. First of all, we had a pretty big team. We, we made a big reduction, about half of the company, um, which really sucked. I mean, these are people, almost every single one of them, we just spent all this time and energy recruiting in the year prior, we had just run. these were amazing people. We had recruited them, we had trained them, we had trusted them with our brand to go and do our work. And then overnight, we had to just say goodbye. It was terrible. And then we had to regroup as a much smaller team and then think, all right, well, this is an office oh, business. Is Our company is going to pay us yeah. if they can't go to their office. Uh, how many are going to go out of business? 
I mean, we kind of serve large corporates, but we were like reading headlines about, you know, all these giant companies filing for bankruptcy. And we got to assume that the business is going to shrink pretty dramatically. And we have to think about what all the consequences are all around the ecosystem. So what will happen in the real estate market? What's up with landlords? What's up with their banks and their lenders? Like, what's the Fed going to do? Um, will the governments get involved and start saying, uh, well, we're doing this kind of amnesty, this and that? Will there be other kind of relief? You know, in some countries, it's been quite amazing. Uh, the programs that have been deployed, I think the U.S. was not the best one, but it was there were some helpful things. So we thought through all that stuff, man, and um, we adopted a really, a really tough footing uh, going into April 1st. So April 1st was like go time. Yeah. Crisis, disaster, everything. Yeah. And we adopted like the most maximally tough footing to protect the business until we saw things turning around. And, and that hasn't been an easy thing. And we still had peaked in New York uh, by April 1st. You know, we were peaking in New York about, I think around April 20th or April 25th, right? So there was still a long way to go um, when you started yeah. making some of those decisions. Uh, oh, for sure, yeah. I mean, it was like mid to late March, we pulled the trigger on all this stuff. We like make all these massive changes in the company. Um, we get everybody, uh, rallied to just lock in and hang in there. Um, you know, we've made our gloomiest estimates about what's going to happen and we got to just hang in there until things start turning around. And I guess our view was that by the end of the second quarter, we should be at the worst economically speaking. So, you know, we've been pretty transparent with our numbers and stuff. Um, we closed the first quarter of 2020, um, at around 370 million of them, a pretty big number, and it had grown by like I don't know, 40 million or something during the first year. We, we were really rolling, uh, but April was down, May was down, June was down, uh, very substantial losses of revenue. And let's see where July shakes out, but it, this may be the first month where the, there's like a bend. Mm -hmm. um, that the, the sort of global free fall is over. And um, I'm, I mean, I, I, hope it, I hope it closes out that way yeah. um, for everybody's sake, because um, that was roughly what we thought. We thought, okay, Q2, all the companies in the world are gonna just like process how big this disaster is. And they're probably gonna make decisions that are a lot deeper, hopefully with some margin of safety themselves. Yeah. And while it won't be over in Q3, maybe companies will stop retreating. Maybe they'll just like be flat by then and we'll have to see what happens. And I guess like I'm optimistic about July and, and certainly August, just in terms of performance in our business. And one of the surprises is um, how fast Europe has recovered. Yeah. Europe's doing awesome. And, you know, a, a lot of our businesses in Europe and we've been increasing our forecasts for the second half of the year across France, Germany, Netherlands, UK. Yeah. Um, and at the same time that we're looking at like California and very concerned. Yeah. How, how have the conversations with um, your customers and landlords been like, you know, I mean, I'm sure customers have saying, like you said, Hey, I'm not going to the office. I can't pay or I don't want to pay. Uh, landlords are saying, well, you got to pay me and you might be, paying. well, look, we can't necessarily pay you right now. How have you been handling those? Well, surprisingly, I guess, like by and large, those two communities have been um, 
really good to deal with. Uh, on the customer side, corporates unfortunately do face some unavoidable problems. You know, um, the economic distress is real. It's it's very real for small companies. A whole bunch of them are just dropping. Yeah. Like I don't know what's going to happen, and that's not always expressed to us in exactly those words. Um, but you know, like if a forty-person company says we're only twenty people now and we're going to work from home for the rest of the year, that's not primarily because Zoom is awesome and they yeah. like Zoom. It's because they're going through a really difficult period. Yeah. Um, and also very large companies. I mean, a lot of large companies that you would think are very powerful. Well, they're trying to like really reduce costs. I mean, um, you know, it was in the news that you know, like Starbucks had stopped paying its landlords and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, big companies were taking pretty radical measures to um, retrench in various ways. So that stuff, I wish I wish it was different, but I can't blame some of these folks for having to deal with it. There's a handful of folks who, you know, I wish were being a little more forthright in the way they were doing things. But by and large, I think what companies know is they're going to be back in their workplaces. The workplace is an important thing. Yeah. It's like how they get a lot of stuff done. They're not in any rush to get back, but there are very few companies that are comfortable with the idea that um, they just close all their offices and then hopefully they figure it out later. Like yeah. no one's doing that. And even when you see the headlines of somebody like Twitter saying, we're going to let you work from home indefinitely. I mean, you got to think about the math on that. Yeah. Um, in America, as of December, before all this, about 2% of people in America were full-time remote workers working from home. And I'm sure that number will be higher on the other end of this. But right. I also have direct experience, as I think you do and everyone does, that working from home for many months um, is like not ideal. Like you can't just permanently do it. And you know, the first few months were fun, and now everyone's like, I just cannot deal. Um, I plan to do a lot more hybrid work myself. I bet every company will, uh, and that's a good thing because I don't think every company can accommodate it having all of its staff back in the office this September. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, too much density. So people are going to start ramping back up and we've seen it. I'm not just making predictions. I mean, that's what's happening in France and in Germany for us. Uh, people are coming back to the office. It's 20, 30 percent on any given day. OK, there's you know, there's distancing and it's kind of safer. Uh, people feel energized when they're back in and it's like yeah. a productive thing. And that will happen in due time, yeah. whether it's India or the US. So that's the the customer side. Yeah. But the landlord side, you know, they have been generally very good partners. Um, but it's business. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of them know that we're in a long term trend towards flex and that Notel is a leader and they're going to want us there and la la la. A lot of them have problems that are a lot more serious than what I'm experiencing at Notel. Mm. Some of them have retail. A lot of them have restaurants. Many of them own hotels. Yeah. That stuff's tough right now. At least with with us, they know that um, the office world will resume and that Notel is going to be a big part of it. You know, there are some folks that we find ourselves getting into some tougher discussions with and we yeah. end up fighting with them here and there. Yeah. But the vast majority, uh, we found ourselves in, in a really good spirit of partnership. What about investors? I'm sure uh, a lot of the investors over the last couple of months have been wanting to find out um, plans and what your thoughts are on how things are going to go and how things are going to change. And some of them might have been somewhat difficult conversations. Um, yeah. Could you share some light on what those conversations were like? And, you know, I'm sure other startups are facing similar conversations with their investors, right? So how have you handled some of those discussions? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess like you're asking mainly about the existing group of investors yeah, and yeah, the yeah, board yeah. and the folks that have influence. Yeah, yeah. existing. It's, yeah, I mean, it's a really great group, um, a very experienced group. They've seen a lot of this stuff before, uh, and their wisdom is really valuable as we try to navigate the stuff we're doing. Um, but kind of what I was saying on the, the the landlord side, part of what makes these guys so wise and valuable to us is they actually have portfolios that touch a lot of different things. Mm. And that means they also see some really bad things. Mm. And so, you know, folks in times like this get, get worried. And, um, you know, every bad scenario that's happening all around the portfolio, they're worried about checking it and making sure we're doing the right thing here. And, um, you know, they, uh, it's like it's not their money for most investors. Yep. They're responsible for someone else. And the idea that like there's there won't be any excuse mm-hmm. for them if there's some global terrible economic crisis and they lose the money and the investment, you know. So like folks get folks get worried. And it it is one of the very important jobs of leading a company is um you have been entrusted by a bunch of folks with lots of money to try to get it to the right place. And uh, they are trying to exercise their best judgment and their due care. But I think for a lot of founders, it's probably harder than even uh, managing the team. Like you might have 500 people on your team that report to you, but the five people on your board may take more time and more worry uh, than the internal part. So uh, have you been spending a lot more time talking to your board and your investors than you thought you might during this period? Uh, yeah, for sure. Well, thought I might. I mean, I guess having been through a couple of these before, I saw what happened. Um, but yeah, even so, I honestly have been surprised at times. And it's not just them, it's everyone. Yeah. I've spent much more time just talking than I do in the past. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of good that I don't have to commute anywhere and that I can like talk to you this way because like, you know, I, I'm spending very little time reading and writing. Um, way more time face to face with people because the team outsiders investors the press customers like you gotta over, i mean and of course this is the most basic advice in times of crisis you need to really over communicate to keep people on some level of sync because things keep changing so fast you know i can't just keep repeating what i was saying back in april like things have been changing that means i got to get everyone updated and i got to hear what's going on yeah i mean i i don't know everything so if I got to listen and 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 express what our view is, it's like the vast majority of what I do. All day. And sometimes when I'm talking to Edward, my co-founder, um, it's sort of hard to do an accounting of where the time went because like I run the company, all the people report to me. Edward has a very specific set of duties, which are super important. And that sometimes puts him in a spot where he's like thinking strategically in ways that I haven't had time to do for four months. Mm. He's like, well, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm dealing with, Black Lives Matter for the last month. Yeah. Or at this point longer. I mean, if on top of you know the virus and the economic crisis, all of a sudden you see these images of American policemen just killing black people and everybody is in the streets. Yeah. It was a very powerful moment in our company. Yeah. And it's not something you just like write an email. Like we had to confront it as people and as an organization. And it has been a like a huge process of change for us that we've just started. I mean, I don't know what's next, but three huge crises in four months. Let's talk about that a little bit. You know, um, it it's a very emotional uh, thing that 
you know, most Americans have gone through over the last five, six weeks, um, the whole Black Lives Matter and um, all of that. As CEO and founder uh, of a large organization, right, you can't just write an email and call it a day. Uh, no. What are the things that you've been thinking about and that you've been uh, executing on that you think will make a real difference, not just at Notel, but in uh, the broader community? Yeah, I mean, those who are not in the US, I think, may not even understand how mm -hmm. intensely emotional this thing was. Yeah. Uh, my colleagues uh, around the world uh, were sort of politely following along and they have their own way of understanding. I mean, there's racism in India, there's racism yeah. in Brazil, there's yeah. racism, but like, somehow for, for us in the US, uh, it was intense, you know, people were falling apart. Um, and, you know, at one level, it's just about who are we and do we have some level of empathy and understanding? So that's at one level. But I think at like the highest level, it was a, a question about, um, why we do what we do like what is the purpose um if if you think that there is systemic racism and you're building a business that's part of the system it simply follows that you are racist too yeah, yeah. That there are all these practices all this stuff built in and are we just going to put a little like statement out and just say we hope that's going to change somehow and hope somebody else will take care of it right um no you can't i mean if, if you think that the purpose of starting your company was to make money, and if you think that that is what attracted all these people to your company, uh, you are mistaken. I mean, it's not. Right. I think we all uh, have sought to build careers in this world to have some kind of impact that would make some positive benefit for others. Yeah. And at the core, you know, in the land of startups, like sometimes you don't even have to think about it because if you're going to change and innovate, of course, that's going to be better for everybody. I don't need to put that in my mission statement. Of course, we're going to make real estate move faster, more fair, more accessible. Okay, okay, of course. Well, this was a big reminder to me that we can't just get that for free and just sort of assume one day Notel is this huge company, 10 times bigger than today, 100 times bigger than today. And because we're good people, the industry will just be like a better industry. Mm. It, it became much more important to us this last month or two to specifically surface and identify what are we doing wrong, what is happening in our business that doesn't make sense, what's happening in the communities around us, and what can we do to just try to move that needle? I think we can move the needle on us quite a bit. We can have an anti-racist agenda inside the company where we're moving the needle, not just ignoring it, saying, hey, we're colorblind. And I think we can do that in our product. We can demand, you know, buildings have safety standards. There are signs that say, things about gender like yeah. in the bathroom. And yet there are no signs about, about race in building. Mm -hmm. uh, but you don't need the signs to know they're racist. I mean, you just have to walk yeah. through the lobby of a building. You or me walk through a building and certainly imagine if you were an African-American walk through the lobby of a fancy building without stopping to check in, you know, that you get a comment. Yeah. Um, I think that, I think make it explicit and then, and then tackle it. And of course that was, that was the whole point. The point wasn't to start an hotel so we could like beat the other guy. Right. It was to like fix this thing that was fundamentally broken. It has a bunch of economic dimensions for sure, um, but it also has these about justice. Yeah. Well, uh, we're a little short on time. Um, 
we got a couple of comments that came in from the audience. If you got a couple of minutes, I'd like to just quickly run through a couple of these. Um, yeah. So uh, first one is from Abit uh, asking, are we seeing? Are you seeing any startups or trends uh, empowering remote readiness in the workplace? <clears throat> uh, not enough. I mean, I haven't seen anything new in four months. Wow. Uh, it's like as if some kind of revolution happened and we're using all the exact same stuff that existed last November. Yeah. I mean, like to act like some kind of Zoom revolution just happened it, to me is like comical. I mean, yes, it works. Video conferencing is like very convenient and we've been using it a lot for years. But is it any different than it was five months ago? Like I haven't noticed any. Yeah, I have another. I have seen more conferencing type of uh, products where uh, you can have large groups of people uh, attending a virtual conference. But, you know, other than that, yeah, I haven't seen anything that really changes things. Yeah, yeah. Okay, next question we got from Ava. Um, what do you think about hotels turning into office suites? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, like a hotel is actually a co-working facility with a bed in every office. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe. I think the privacy of a closed door is appealing, but um, that hallway, that lobby, like, I don't know. Is that what, if if if, we, if you're a solo practitioner kind of person and you just need like a place to go, that product I guess has existed for a little while. Yeah. You do this and co-working, and I suppose if the, the hotel business is struggling, maybe they want to just turn it off. Yeah. All right. Uh, another one from Abit, uh, which is, are you seeing a significant shift in your business model? You we work uh, because of the pandemic. Um, we shall see. I mean, I don't want to be too gloomy about the co-working business, but I think this whole sharing thing, I mean, the co-working business is a product of that sharing economy vibe yeah. uh, of, of about 10 years ago. And this is not the time to be sharing a small enclosed space with some people or even with other random people because you kind of <laughs> want to bump into them. Yeah. So I don't know how they're going to deal with that. We have been always focused on just like large teams from individual companies. And I think we know the game plan there. They're mm -hmm. going to have 20, 30, 40, 50% in the office and we'll have social distancing and all that. Um, there may be some changes in their portfolio and we could get way more, you know, into the, the you know, the, the nitty gritty on all the little dynamics that I'm seeing. But I think broadly speaking, offices come, it will be back. We're going to be back in office. Flex is going to be way preferable to long-term leases. And you're going to really appreciate what Notel does for you, the managed part of what we do. Yeah. It's so much more valuable than it was in the past. So I think that we come out on the other side of this thing and it's like one of those e-commerce step change moments, you know, yeah. where suddenly your grandparents figure out how to use um, Instacart. This is, this is your grandparents' corporate is going to be using Notel when we get to the other end. So, you know, kind of connected to that question, there's another question from Sandeep asking about uh, whether you think investors are going to take uh, more exposure to the, let's call it, broaden it out a little bit, flexible real estate market or uh, once the dust settles? Uh, well, if it's about this market in particular, it is a very interesting moment. So, you know, about general VC, I won't comment, but on on this market, so that this business called Flex. Uh, with Flex, there was always a question. And whatever you were in that flex category, whether you were the co-working company or you were some events company or you were Notel doing corporate type offices, 
people wondered about a real estate downturn, what happens? Uh, there hadn't been one. We started the company when it was a up market and my prediction was it'd be over in one year. Then I made the same prediction the next year and then the next year and the next year. I even made the same prediction last year. So I guess you do it five times and you get, you're eventually right. So this is the year that we get our massive downturn. Um, but the question and the reason that downturn is so important is it's a test of the fundamental business. Now I have the answer to that test for notality. Yeah. I have three months that suck, but they're okay. Like we have done so much better than we could have. And we're still in like a pretty resilient position that we're going to be growing these next few months. And we're going to be in a really powerful position again by the end of the year, maybe even better than where we started. Yeah. Answering that test is huge. And I think that is the sort of thing that investors have been waiting for. So it's going to yeah. be important. And, you know, for Notel, I have seen that. I've seen <laughs> investors calling us saying that. Interesting. A um, couple more questions if you got two minutes. Sure. Okay. Um, this is a much broader question. What would you be doing if you were not doing no tell right now? Right now is a weird thing. Yeah. Right now, I wouldn't be stuck in my New York City home. I'd be traveling widely. I mean, I have so many obligations um, just running our company that I, I kind of feel like I need to stay at the center of it all instead of just fooling around. But maybe the question is more just like professionally, what would I want to do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Usually, usually in a big downturn like this is is when some really interesting companies get started. You know, it's kind of a basic uh, yeah. truth that some people eat often. Uh, your option, you know, your sort of like alternatives are are weaker, and you're uh, you, you ought to be thinking about it. And that's what I'd be doing. I mean, I'd I'd just be working on my next new thing. I have so many things I'm curious about and interested in, and at this point, I'm pretty good at the first few steps in starting companies. And now at least I've been through the next few steps a couple of times. <laughs> I, I'd love to I'd, I'd do it again. <clears throat> All right, cool. Um, just a couple of comments from folks who uh, were watching, really loved your thoughts and your insights. You know, I could keep going for another hour listening to you, Amal. Uh, there's a lot of other things that I'd love to cover. I wanna be cognizant of your time. Um, so I want to just end with one more question, which is what do you think the future of work means today? You know, you, you've been involved in the future of work for quite some time, speaking at, uh, things about the future of work and the, um, organizing conferences and everything. Um, how do you think the future of work has changed now? And what do you think it will be vaccine or not? Um, well, I have a boring answer because I, uh, I don't think it's changed that much, you know, like in, in one way, everything is different, but there's some things that I'd be willing to wager. And I would have made this wager a year ago too, that 10 years from now, there'll be more of the following things, uh, more of the most valuable stuff in the world will happen in cities because that's been true more or less every 10 years for 5,000 years. You have your setbacks here and there, but 5,000 years later, most of the world is in cities. 80% of the rich countries are in cities. I don't see it going the other direction. I'm willing to bet that. Second, the highest value work will be the stuff that we human beings do together. There will continue to be automation of all kinds of stuff. We're 150 years into automation and there'll be much more knowledge work getting automated. 
But there's the stuff we do together, which they totally suck at. And if you need a great example of that, it's like driving on the road together. It was supposedly a solved problem five years ago and we're still not even close. Yeah. I suspect that the things that are the most like high judgment, high um, EQ, you need to do them with other people. You do them as teams and that's where some of the, the biggest insights and the biggest breakthroughs happen. So I think I'm willing to bet on that. Uh, which means of course I, I, I'd be happy to bet on offices, you know? Yeah. Um, it's this collaborative thing, which I think is the heart of, of what the future works about. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. This was fantastic. Um, we'll have to do it again soon. Uh, check in maybe in a couple months when things are a little bit better, uh, not just in New York, but everywhere, uh, kind of see how things are going at Notel, how you're holding up. Um, and we'll, we'll catch up offline as well. Uh, thanks again. Uh, I really appreciate you making the time. Um, Thank you everyone who's been watching. Uh, if you've got questions for Amol, is there a way that people can reach out to you, Amol, that you prefer? Uh, yeah, you can write to me, amol at notel.com. Fantastic, so if you got questions, you can get in touch with Amol directly. Thanks again for watching, and next week we're probably gonna do something a little bit different where a old colleague of mine is going to uh, flip the uh, roles around and ask me a bunch of questions, so. Uh, oh. We're going to try and do a little something. A little oh, I'd love that chance too. Yeah. So uh, we're going to do it again next Tuesday at 1230 uh, Eastern time. So hopefully we'll see a couple of you next week as well. Thanks again, everyone. And we will see you soon. Thank you so much. Punkage. Thanks. I'm all appreciate it.